First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we've been studying for weeks now the life of David, uh, a man that God calls a man after my own heart. And last week, we read about how David finally, after years and years of waiting, became the king over all of Israel, just as God had promised him. And we saw how he took the city of Jerusalem and made it his capital city. Uh, We saw how the Lord gave him two great victories over his enemies, the Philistines. And today, we're going to read another story uh, about another big thing that happened during King David's Rain when he decides to move a special golden box called the Ark to his capital city of Jerusalem. And the first thing we're going to do is to read this uh, story from start to finish together, uh, right from God's Word. But before we uh, even do that, I just want to prepare you uh, because this story is going to challenge us today. Uh, this story is going to challenge the way that we think about God, actually. This story is going to challenge the way that we think we can approach God and come into His presence. This story is even going to challenge maybe the way we think about what we have been doing for the last hour or so in this time of worship. And so whether you are new to our church, whether you are new maybe to any church and you're just trying to, to figure out what this Uh, Christianity thing is really all about, or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, there's going to be something in this story, I assure you, that will challenge every single one of us. And so let's read it together. 2 Samuel 6, beginning in verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwelt between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord and on all kinds of instruments, of fir woods, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Verse 12, now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. 
And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone, to his house. And David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of those base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Father, we thank you for this, your word for the way it speaks to us, for the way that it challenges us. Father, we pray today knowing that only your Holy Spirit is able to break through the hard places in our heart. Father, to draw us to greater faith. Father, we know that your Spirit is the one who brings conviction of sin and of judgment to come. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving and active in this room, in our hearts, even in the next few moments as your word is open before us. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Well, the story that we just read uh, breaks down pretty neatly, pretty evenly, into two main sections. First, there's verses 1 through 11, which tells the story of the first time that David tried to move the ark, and we just saw that that didn't turn out so well. But then in verses 12 to the end of the chapter, uh, we read about the second time when David successfully moves the ark up to Jerusalem and all the celebration that went along with that. And so in each of these two main sections of this story, I believe there is a quality in each section that the Lord wants to see in our lives. And so first off, as we look at that first section, verses 1 through 11, we can see how much God wants us, his people, to treat him as holy. To treat him as holy. You know, if you, if you ask me, what, what is the most important thing for a person to understand about God? This is actually what I would say, that they would understand that God is holy. And maybe someone might say, well, what do you mean? Wouldn't you want them to know that God is love or that God is merciful or that God is good? And certainly all those things are true and all those things are important. But 
really, until you understand that the God who is, the God with whom we have to do, is a holy and righteous and perfect God, then really none of the rest of his attributes make much sense or really are able to be comprehended. Because the truth of the matter is, until we see how holy and righteous God is and how sinful and unrighteous we are by comparison, the truth is that the cross of Jesus Christ does not make sense to us. The first thing that we need to know about God is that he is a holy, righteous, pure God. And this story, as much as anywhere in the Bible, reveals that truth to us. The first couple of verses here tell us that King David decides that he is going to go and get the ark from the town where it had been and to bring it up to Jerusalem. Now what is the ark? Well, the ark was a very special wooden box that was covered all around in gold. God had told Moses to build the ark many years before this. Among other things, the two stone tablets that contained the words of the Ten Commandments were kept inside of the ark. And on top of the ark were two golden cherubim, two angelic creatures who were facing one another. Here's a picture of what the ark would have looked like. The ark was very special because we know that God is everywhere. God cannot be contained in a box or in a room or in a building or anywhere in all the world. And yet God said that in a very special way, he would make his presence known. He would manifest his presence on the ark. That's why it says in verse 2 that this is the Lord who dwells between the cherubim. Almost as if the ark was the footstool of God's throne, the place where the throne of heaven meets the earth. And so again, the ark was very, very special indeed, and the Lord gave all kinds of instructions about how the ark was to be treated, how it was to be carried, which becomes very important in this story. But this is not the first time that the ark shows up in the book's of Samuel. We've read about the ark actually many times in our study of 1st and 2nd Samuel over the last year or so. Uh, all the way back at the beginning of 1st Samuel, the ark uh, rested in a town called Shiloh in the tabernacle where Samuel the prophet grew up. And you remember in 1st Samuel 4, the Israelites go to the tabernacle and they take the ark out of it and they bring it out onto the battlefield because they think that the ark is going to be kind of a good luck charm, a lucky rabbit's foot to help them win their battle against the Philistines. But they didn't win the battle against the Philistines, and they found that God cannot be manipulated in that way. And the Philistines were glad to be able to uh, claim the ark from the battlefield and take it back. And uh, they thought now they had this powerful weapon that now was a part of their own arsenal. And if you recall, the ark, though, started wreaking havoc. Everywhere that they took it, their false god Dagon got decapitated in his own temple one night when the ark was there beside it, and then people started breaking out in tumors everywhere, and so the Philistines said, this ark is too powerful, we can't keep the ark here, we need to send it back to Israel. So they put it on a cart, and they tied some milk cows to it, and the milk cows amazingly, miraculously, pulled the ark all the way back to this town called Beth Shemesh in Israel. And there was a lot of celebration about this. God had brought the ark back to his 
people from the land of the Philistines. But then if you recall, the people of Beth Shemesh decided to open up the ark and to look inside of it, something that they were not permitted to do. And many, many people died because they did that. That story actually reminds me an awful lot of the story we're looking at today. And so the people of Beth Shemesh were very afraid of the ark. They said, we can't keep the ark here with us either. They had the same reaction that the Philistines did. And so they sent it to this other town, Kirjath-Jerim. And the ark went to the house of a man named Abinadab, where his son Eleazar took care of the ark for the next 20 years. So that's where the ark has been all of this time, until now. When David decides that he's going to get the ark and he's going to bring it to Jerusalem, I think David wanted the ark, which represented the presence of God, to be central in his reign, central in his kingdom, central in his life. It's a good question for us. Are we like David in that? Do we want the presence of the Lord to be central in our life, in our house, in our family? Or are we content, like Saul was throughout his reign, for the presence of God to be out on the fringes? And so I think it's with the best intentions that David goes on this particular day with 30,000 people, a huge festive throng, to go and get the ark and to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so he goes to Abinadab's house, where again the ark has been for 20 years And they put the ark on a cart and they begin to wheel it out of the house of Abinadab. And Eleazar's two brothers, Uzzah and Ahio, are there. They're kind of driving the cart. And we read that Ahio is in the front. Presumably Uzzah was at the back. And verse 5 describes it. Again, a very festive atmosphere. They they apparently brought every musical instrument that they could find. Uh, People were playing all kinds of things. Cymbals, tambourines. The blue man group was there. They were banging on trash cans. I mean, people were going crazy. It was a very joyful time. Everybody was excited and everything was going really, really well. Until verse 6. It says, When they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. So again, everything was going really, really well. This party was in full swing until the people looked up and saw somebody drop down dead and they called 911 and everybody started panicking you know nothing sucks the life out of a party like somebody dying in the middle of it and that's what happened here and and the text tells us he didn't just die of natural causes either it's very clear the lord struck him because he reached out his hand and touched the ark and the text also tells, tells us he didn't just decide well i feel like i'm going to touch the ark in fact the text tells us that The oxen stumbled, and presumably Uzzah thought that the ark was about to tip and fall over on the ground. And so almost as a spontaneous, just kind of knee-jerk reaction, he reaches out to to steady the ark so that it will not topple over onto the ground. And, And then God strikes him dead, and he falls dead right there on the spot. And this is where I said that this story will challenge the way that we think about God. Because I think if we're honest, we would say, I don't really get that. I don't really understand why God would do that. In fact, I don't really like reading a story where it says that the God that I worship would do something like that. 
And if we're upset about God doing that, we're not alone because the text tells us that David was angry about it too. Verse 8 says David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, breakout against Uzzah to this day. In the original Hebrew of that verse, the word outbreak or breaking out was used three times. Well, in the chapter right before this, in chapter 5, in verse 20, that same word to break out against something was used four times, but that time David was, was celebrating a great victory. He was speaking about how the Lord broke out against his enemies, but here the, David is angry at God, and he's speaking about how the Lord has now broken out against one of his friends. And David doesn't understand it, and I think also David is angry because he's embarrassed. It was his idea, after all, to go and get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. And this is how it had ended, at least for now. And so again, we're not alone if we're angry or if we don't understand. David didn't either. But David came to realize something that we need to come to realize as well. That God was not lashing out at Uzzah for no reason here. And just like it says in verse 7, Uzzah died for his error. You see, back in the law of Moses, God had warned them that if anyone touched the ark, they would die. And you find that very clearly stated in Numbers chapter 4. And so God is just doing exactly what he said he would do in his word. But we still want to protest that. And we say, well, yes, but the ark was, was falling. He was trying to keep it from... From toppling over. There's a couple things that I would say about that. And first off, I would say that this whole situation of the fact that the ark was riding on a cart was a sin to begin with. Because in the law of Moses, God told Moses how to build the ark, and he told him to build it with rings on the four corners and poles that would slide between the rings and he commanded them that when they were transporting the ark that the ark was to be carried by the poles and so had David and Uzzah and his brother simply read the word of God and did what God told them to do they would have been carrying the ark this whole cart experiment was a disaster waiting to happen and all of them including David share some blame in what happened to Uzzah on this day. The second thing that I would share with you is this, that if the ark had fallen on the ground, it would actually not have been as bad as Uzzah reaching out his hand to touch it. Because here's the deal, and Heath Thomas and J.D. Greer bring this out as well, the ground that the ark would have landed on was actually not as dirty as Uzzah's hand. Because the ground had never sinned against the holy and righteous and perfect God. But Uzzah had. The ground wasn't nearly as dirty as the touch of a sinful man. Like Uzzah. Or like any of us. And so I think the reason that we don't understand why God did this. Is just like Uzzah. We have a hard time comprehending how holy God is. And how sinful we are. By comparison. And if we don't understand that, then we will not understand why the cross of Jesus is so amazing. 
that God's Son would take our grimy, dirty sin upon himself, that he who knew no sin would become sin for us. He would pay for our sin with his own blood. If we really understand how holy God is and how sinful we are, we would not be saying, God, why would Uzza die for touching the ark? What we would be saying is, God, how is it that you have not killed me yet? How is it that I have been allowed to keep living day after day and year after year when so often I have the same flippant, cavalier, nonchalant attitude with a holy and righteous God as Uzzah had in this passage? How is it, God, that you have been so merciful to me that you have allowed me to continue living when I deserve to die every bit as much as this man who died in this story? But you know why God hasn't struck us all down, he tells us in his word, because he's being merciful to us. And he's giving us time to turn around. He's giving us time to accept the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, into our life. And friend, have you, have you considered, have you thought about the fact that maybe that's why in God's plan for your life that you're here even right now in this service? To hear this particular story from the word of God So that you might know that you need to turn to Jesus and accept the sacrifice that only he can give you before it is too late. Even for those of us in this room who are believers already, what a powerful reminder this is that our God is not a God to be trifled with. Yes, he invites us into an intimate relationship with himself. But as one person put it, yes, Jesus taught us that we should pray our Father who is in heaven. We're invited to say, Abba, Father. But Jesus also taught us to pray right after that, Hallowed, Holy, be your name. And so even as we say, Abba, Father, we need to remember that our Father is a holy, holy, holy Father and the whole earth is full of His glory. And we would do well to have a healthy, holy fear of the Lord in our hearts and in our lives. I don't know how healthy it was, but David was afraid of the Lord after what he saw. After watching Uzzah die in the way that he did, and so he aborts his myth his mission of bringing the ark up to Jerusalem at this time, and he sends it away to one guy's house, a man named Obed-Edom. And the ark was in Mr. Obed-Edom's house for three glorious months. These were like the best three months that Obed-Edom ever had. And the ark was there. God was blessing every single part of his life. And this just shows us the the opposite side of this truth. Yes, God is not safe by any measure. God is dangerous to sinners who have not been covered with the blood of the sacrifice. But God is also the source of all blessing in our life as well. And his desire is not to curse us. His desire is to bless us. And so people come and they tell David, David, Do you know how much God is blessing the house and the family of Obed-Edom while the ark is in his house? And David hears that and he takes that as a promise for himself that this is how it's going to be for him and for his kingdom and for Israel. If he would go back again and he would bring the ark to Jerusalem as he had planned. And so three months after his first attempt, David goes back a second time. 
And he tries again, and things go very differently this time. For David and for Israel, look at the end of verse 12. It kind of sums it up for us. It says, So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Here's the second quality that God wants to see in us. Yes, he wants us to treat him as holy, but also he wants us to worship him happily. To worship him happily. That's what we see here. This whole scene of of David and the people singing and dancing and celebrating as they carry the ark up to Jerusalem is an extended worship service. We're worshiping the Lord with every step that they took. And so as we look at the final verses in this chapter, I want us to focus on that, this topic of, of worship and the kind of worship that really honors the Lord. And there's several aspects of that that we can see here. First of all, worship that honors God is a joyful worship. That's really what pervades this whole scene. Again, in verse 12, it says they worshiped him. They, they, they did this with, with gladness. But also everything that we see, the dancing that's taking place, the shouting, the instruments that are playing, it's all a festive, joyful atmosphere. That's because joy was in their hearts. They worship God. And yes, there is a time in our worship for somber reflection. There should be time and space in our worship even for grief and sorrow. There should be time for repentance and mourning over our sin. And the book of Psalms gives us songs for all of those kinds of moods and emotions. But, but, the default mode of worship for the people of God is joy. It's joy. And why is that? Because we serve a God as awesome as our God. We serve a God who has done such amazing things for us that as his people, again, our default mode as we come into his presence to worship him should be one of unbridled joy. The psalmist says, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. One thing to notice here in Commentators on this passage have pointed this out, that in the same chapter, in the same chapter where we read about how we should tremble before God and fear God and his holiness, in the same chapter we also read about how we should sing and dance and celebrate with joy and the presence of the Lord. And so what we see here is that understanding that God is holy and having a holy, healthy, reverent fear of God actually does not restrain our joyful worship in the Lord. It actually propels that joyful worship of the Lord. When we come to understand how holy and righteous and perfect and high above us he is, it actually moves us to want to worship him. That's what we see happening here. Joy-filled worship. But also don't miss this, that worship that honors the Lord is an obedient worship. An obedient worship. The narrator of this story doesn't really make a big deal out of it, but it's it's pretty clear that in the three months between when David tried to move the ark the first time and when he moves the ark the second time, that he had done a little bit of reading. Because when he moves it the second time, he moves it in a different way. And you can see that in verse 13. It says, And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces. Did you catch that? No more carts, no more oxen. Now there were people bearing 
carrying the ark just like God's word said that they were supposed to. The, the parallel account of this story, which is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it makes this even more clear. It says that David admitted that the first time he had erred by not seeking the Lord, by not uh, finding out the proper way to carry the ark, but now he had remedied that. Now they were worshiping God God's way. Now, both times that God's people were enthusiastic and they were excited, but this time they were also obedient in the way that they worshipped. And you know, this really kind of blows out of the water the arguments that some people make about worship where they say, well, you know, I, I feel like I can worship God, you know, in my own way. I can worship God just however I want to, and I, I don't think I really need to go to church or or do any of that to worship God. I just kind of worship him the way I want to worship him. Well, they tried to worship God the way they wanted to worship him too, and it ended with a death scene and some crime tape. God wants us to worship him in the spirit, but he wants us to worship him in truth. And the same God that we are worshiping is a God who has told us in Hebrews 10 that we are not to forsake what we're doing right now. That we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That we are to worship God not just on our own, not just on the golf course, not just on the lake. But we are to worship God with other believers in his house. Of course, we also understand that worship is not just something that's limited to one day a week. Something that happens in one hour, in one place, but rather the Word of God tells us worship is something that is about all of life. That's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do the things that I say? He might even say to us, why do you sing songs that say, Jesus, the name above every name, if you're not actually living like Jesus is the name above every name? A good worshiper, according to Jesus, is not one who sings good songs instead of bad songs. A good worshiper is one who lives an obedient life that pleases God. Jesus said the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Friend, right now, how truthful, how obedient is your worship? Where are those areas in your life right now where what you are saying and what you are singing do not actually match with how you are living? I told you this story was going to be challenging for us, and I I assure you that what I'm saying is just every bit as challenging for me as it is for you. But our worship, if it's going to honor God, it's going to be joyful worship. It's going to be obedient worship. Number three, it's going to be sacrificial worship. Go back to verse 13 for a moment. He says, And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So they went a whole six steps from the front door of Obed-Edom's house and they stopped. And they had a worship service right there and they sacrificed to the Lord. Animals were sacrificed and we're going to come back to that a little later and talk about the significance of that. Some people believe that they actually sacrificed animals every six steps that they took all the way to Jerusalem, and that's possible. It's one way of reading this text. I don't think that that's actually the case, but they did make sacrifices here after the first six steps that they took. And then we read in verses 17 and 18 that once they made it to Jerusalem, that King David offers more sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And we're going to come back to 
to this and speak about this again, but this idea that our worship should be a sacrifice is driven home in the book of Samuel. We see it at the very end of the book of Samuel when David makes another sacrifice at another threshing floor. And he makes the statement there, I will not offer to the Lord anything that costs me nothing. He was saying, if I'm going to offer something, it's going to be a sacrifice. And so it should be with our worship as well. Here's another part of worship that honors God. You can see it so clearly in this story. Worship that honors God is free, expressive worship. And and you see that freedom of worship all the way throughout this scene. Again, verse 14, uh, David is dancing before the Lord. It says that he wasn't wearing his royal, royal garments, the garments of the king, but rather he was wearing a simple white linen gown as he Dance. Verse 16 says he was leaping and even whirling before the Lord. Verse 15 says trumpets were blaring. The people were shouting with joy as the ark made its way into the city. I think we would agree this is pretty free, pretty expressive worship that is happening before the Lord and probably a lot more free than most of us are actually comfortable with. Because, I mean, let's just, let's just be honest here, right? I mean, as Southern Baptists, right, okay? I mean, we're, I think we're good at a lot of things. I think we're good at, at doctrine. We really believe in sound doctrine and preaching the Bible. Uh, we are good at uh, fellowship. We are good at missions, very passionate about missions. We are good at eating. We are good at casserole making. There's a lot of things that we're good at. at. But, but this right here, being free and expressive in worship, is not one of them. And, and I think about myself, my own journey growing up um, in this church, and even thinking about what I've seen over the years, and, and I think some of this is changing. But I know, especially as I grew up, I, I really felt like the Baptist posture of worship was arms straight down at your side, stoic, expressionless, preferably holding a hymnal, no movement, no eye flutter. I mean, you had to be just locked in. And, and over the years, I've, you know, kind of, broken out of that a little bit and, you know, I get able to come to a place to kind of bring my hands together, you know, sometimes even to my heart, you know, <laughs> gotten to a place sometimes I can reach one hand. I've even gotten where I can reach two hands, but it's almost like there's a ceiling, right? I just can't get above right about here because I think I feel like if I go above there, I'm going to just instantly become a Pentecostal. Like just right there, I'm just, it's over the line. It's not good. And I, I know that, you know, someone will say, um, you know, I'm just not a passionate person. I, I just, you know, I don't get excited about things. And I get that. But, you know, oftentimes the same person who says that has no problem at all getting really, really excited on Sunday afternoon when their favorite football team scores a game-winning touchdown. And so could it be that really it's not a case of not being able to get excited or being able to show passion It's a case of what we're really passionate about. This statement by commentator William Blakey really resonated with me. He said this, look at this. There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all of our coldness to Christ and all of our enthusiasm to the world? If there is anything in the world that should cause us to have passion and enthusiasm. It should be what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. 
We've seen that the kind of worship that honors God is joyful, it is obedient, it is sacrificial, it is free. But finally, we see in this passage that our worship should even be humble, undignified worship. Again, we all worship in different ways, but some people do not like it when others around them worship in ways that they aren't comfortable with. And some people even fall into the trap of, of, of looking around and even in a worship context like this, kind of judging people who, who are worshiping differently and expressing that worship in different forms. And, and you know what? There's someone in this story who does that. Someone in this story who did not like at all the way that David was conducting himself. And that's David's wife, Michael, King Saul's daughter. Look at verse 16. It says, Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. You can just picture it, can't you? As David's down on the, on the street level and he's wearing that white linen gown and he's dancing and he's whirling, throng of people around him. The instruments are playing. The ark is being carried by the priests. And she's looking down from her perch in that upper window, taking it all in. And she sees her husband. She sees the king. And she thinks clearly that the way he is behaving is so far beneath the dignity of of the king. And it says she despises him in her heart. That's as big a tragedy as what happened with Uzzah, to be honest with you. What happened inside her heart at that moment. And she, I think she gets madder and madder the more she watches, right? As, as David blesses the people, as he makes sacrifices, as they take the ark and they put it into this tent that David had constructed for this day. As he sent the people home with gifts and blessed them, she's just getting madder and madder and madder. And then David comes into his house after everybody goes home, and he's all excited. You can imagine this is as big of a day as David has had in his entire reign. And he comes in with the intention of now blessing his own home. But who meets him but his lovely wife, who's probably dressed in her finest gown, not a hair out of place. Her makeup was just so. And when she sees David coming in the door, looking all disheveled and sweaty from his romp in the streets with the people, she cannot take it anymore, and she lets it fly in verse 20. She says, how glorious was the king of Israel today. The sarcasm is dripping off the page. How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering yourself today in the eyes of the maids of his servant as one of the base fellows, the shameless fellows who shamelessly uncovers himself. I really don't think when she says that he uncovered himself that David was dancing in the buff as some people claim. Perhaps she feels that in his whirling he was showing a little more than he should have been showing. But I think also she believed he should have been wearing the royal gown. He should have thought about his appearance. He should have thought about looking like a king on this day. Not looking like a simple commoner. A simple priest. With a simple white gown. And I don't know if you notice that three times in this story it calls Michael the daughter of Saul. It never calls her the wife of David. The daughter of Saul. Daughter of Saul. Daughter of Saul. I think that's intentional because she's acting like Saul. 
And she has more of a Saul-like view of God in this moment than a David-like view of God. She did not think he was looking very kingly. And because of that, because she's so fixated on that, she totally swings and misses about what this day was all about. The truth of the matter is Michael should have been where? Michael should have been down in the streets with David and all the rest, dancing and celebrating before the Lord because she should have understood the significance that the Ark of the Covenant of God's presence had come into the capital city, that the presence of God was manifested in the city of Jerusalem, but she could care less for all of that because David didn't look like a king. She was judging him from her upstairs window instead of rejoicing with him in the streets. And the question is, who are we more like in this story? If we're honest, are we more like David, worshiping the Lord freely and joyfully? Or are we like Michael, judging the way that others worship around us from our lofty perch where we do everything right? And of course, this, this cuts both ways, right? We could be, we could be sitting here and, and looking at those who are maybe more expressive in worship than we are and thinking, we are not a church like that. We do not lift up our hands like that. We don't shout, right? We can kind of be judging people who do that, or, or we can also be judging people the other way, right? Maybe you are a more kind of expressive worshiper, and you're looking around you and are saying, why are all these people, why do they look like they are ice sculptures? <laughs> Clearly, they do not love Jesus as much as I do. And this is where we need to remember, right, what God said to Samuel earlier in 1 Samuel 16. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And instead of worrying about how everybody else around us is expressing their worship, we need to be worried about the condition of our heart before the Lord. And David's response to Michael is classic. He says, it was before the Lord that I did this. In other words, you're bringing up these maiden girls. I wasn't caring if I looked good for the ladies. I was doing this for the Lord. And then he adds this in. I was doing it for the Lord who chose me instead of your father. You think that stuck a little bit in the crawl? <laughs> who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler of the people of Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And that word play music means to laugh means to make merry, I will celebrate, I will be joyful before the Lord, and no matter what you say, Michael, I'm going to keep on doing that. And you know what? There's no question whose side of this worship war God was on between David and Michael. Because in verse 23, we find out that whether because David and Michael had no marital relations for the rest of their marriage, or as I think, because God places his judgment upon Michael for the way she treats the anointed king in this moment. She bears no children for the rest of her life. That's a spiritual principle I think God wants us to hear, that in the same way that Michael was physically barren because of her pride, we will be barren spiritually if we have that same prideful heart that she had, because here is the truth. No spiritual fruit will come from our spiritual pride. Pride is the pathway to barrenness. 
And so let's ask the Lord, God, fill me with a heart of humility. Fill me with a heart like David that doesn't care so much about what other people think, but just cares about what you think. Because only then, only if we have that kind of humble heart, can we offer to God the kind of worship that we see here, the kind of worship that pleases his heart. And I thought about what David said earlier in this passage, right after Uzzah died and when he was so afraid, remember that he wouldn't bring the ark to Jerusalem at that time and he stowed it away in Obed-Edom's house. And at that time, in verse 9, David says this. He says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He was saying God is so holy and so dangerous to sinful people like Uzzah, sinful people like me. How could the ark ever come to me? Probably the same thing's going to happen to me as happened to him. And you know what? Since the ark really represented the presence of God, that's actually a very good question that David asked. David's question was basically this question. How can God ever come to me? How how can we, as unholy, dirty sinners like Uzzah, how can we have a perfect, holy, righteous God? How could he ever come to me? How could he ever live with me? How could he ever walk with me? How could I touch him or intersect him without dropping dead just like Uzzah did? It's a good question, and the answer to that question is actually here in this story. Because the second time David goes to get the ark, Again, do you remember what they did after they only walked six steps? They stopped and they made a sacrifice. Both times they tried to take the ark to Jerusalem, something died. The first time, Uzzah died. The second time, an animal, actually several animals, were sacrificed in their place. And the principle is clear. The only way for sinful people like us to be able to live and walk with a holy God like our God is if there is a blood sacrifice that is offered in our place. And friends, that is why Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. To offer himself as a sacrifice, as the ultimate sacrifice. That his blood would cover our Sin. The truth is we can't go six steps with God. We can't even go the first step with God unless we are covered by the blood of that sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. I want to ask you to stand as we worship the Lord in these next few moments. And, and I do want to invite you, if you're, if you're here and you would say, you know what, I... I don't know where I stand with God. I'm not sure that I've ever received that sacrifice into my life and into my heart that you were just talking about, but I want to do that. And right now, I want to invite you to come, to take your first step with God by surrendering your life to Jesus, asking him to come in, to forgive you, to save you, to redeem you, to adopt you. He wants to do that right now. If you'd be willing to humble yourself and turn from your sin and turn to him. It takes humility to do that. I want to ask you also, we're going to sing a song here about the heart of worship, returning to the heart of worship. And maybe you're in this room and you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've walked with him for many, many years, but as, you, as you've heard this story today, it's, just, it's challenged you in one way or another. Maybe it's challenged you because there's an area in your life where you're kind of, kind of dabbling in sin and, and, and presuming on God's grace that he will look the other way. 
But even for us who are redeemed, there are still consequences to sin. God still tells us he will not be mocked, that whatever a man sows, he will reap. That doesn't take away our eternal salvation, but that means there can be consequences, both for us and for our families, for our witness, for the world. Maybe God's calling you right now, today, to humble yourself, to to repent of that before the Lord, to come here to this altar. Maybe, like Michael, you're struggling with that heart of pride. You know there's an area of sin that you're dealing with, but up till now, you've just been so proud. You've been so concerned with what other people think of you, whether you look like a good Christian or not, that you're not as concerned about whether you actually are being a good Christian as you walk before the Lord. Maybe God's dealing with you in that area of your life. Maybe he's dealing with you specifically in this area of worship, that you, you have not been giving your heart to God. You have not been giving your passion to God. There's a lot of other things in your life that you're a lot more passionate about than you are about worshiping the Lord and being here in his house on Sunday. Maybe there's 10 other places this morning you would have rather gone than come here. And God is just stirring in your heart and saying, why is that the case? Why is there not more passion there for me? And he's drawing you to himself. And so whatever he's saying to you, I invite you just to respond to him. You can come and kneel here at the altar. You can kneel right where you are as we sing these words together. 